Welcome to Life Source Church. We are so glad you found us. We hope that you will experience God with us as you hear the preaching of the word. If men be so wicked with religion, what would they be if without it? Those are the words from Benjamin Franklin in response to a, a pamphlet produced by Thomas Paine in the 1850s. Uh, his argument was that the, the men of his time, those prof 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 professing Christ, uh, had committed such evil and were in, in the process of doing things that were counter to the gospel of Christ that um, that was not the way to go. He produced a, a pamphlet called The Age of Reason, and his idea was that they should follow the reason of a man. That's the way that we should go. And Benjamin Franklin uh, spoke harshly against this and said that while uh, Thomas Paine had, had virtue in his life and had um, a restraint that was there because of his upbringing, because of his culture. That was not something that was natural to man, and that for the most, for the most part, men are left to themselves, um, the results would be disastrous. And that's when Benjamin Franklin, at the very end of his letter, stated that to Thomas Paine, that that would be the result if men abandoned religion and Christianity in particular. So we fast forward maybe a couple hundred years later, and we see the result, and really the the, the product, in a, in a big way, of what Benjamin Franklin was speaking to. And in the 20th century, we had the rise of communism, and it was a government that was based on atheism as its primary premise, with, with Darwinism as it, at its very core and foundation. And not only did it see theism as something that was um, not desirable, it was seen as counterproductive and something that had to be torn down, destroyed, and um, you know, put away. And if, if there was going to be a, a church, it had to be under the control of the Communist Party. It had to be something that was uh, formed in its image. And the Communist philosophy was that uh, they were not accountable to anyone, that they are gods unto themselves, and that there is no god which they need to uh, adhere to. And the result of that in the 20th century, just with Stalin, Mao Zedong, Khmer Rouge, just those three governments alone, was 80 to 100 million people that were killed, right? Many of them uh, for, their, for their faith, right? And, and a lot of times, excuse me, um, one of these days I'll be up here and this won't, this won't happen, but not today, Good apparently. Good luck with that, yeah. <laughs> um, so, and many of them were not just killed, they were tortured, right, for their faith and made to really make a choice. It was in this context that Richard Wormbrand was born. You may know his name. He was the founder of, of um, and I've forgotten, the, 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 the Voice of the Martyrs. Thank you. <laughs> I've, I've only read the, the entire book multiple times the last few weeks, a few months. And anyways, Voice of the Martyrs. He was the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. And um, he was born in this context, in this, this period of time. And what I want to do is something a little bit different today. I want to use some of his words to... Uh, emphasize some of, the, some of the verses that we're going to cover today in this passage, passage in the Sermon of the Mount. And um, fortunately, I've had John Graham, who's going to take the role of, of Richard Warmbrand today, and I really appreciate his doing that. Uh, these are hard verses, hard, hard passage for us to get a to grip on. These are hard, hard things. And so um, just pray that you listen to these words and certainly the verses and my feeble, feeble attempts to to talk through them. And so what I want to do is I want to start out with, this is a fairly long section, the longest section we'll have, is having Richard Wormberg introduce himself and give his testimony. So we're going to start, go ahead. I was orphaned from the first years of life. 
Being brought up in a family in which no religion was recognized, I received no religious education as a child. As a result of a bitter childhood, which included knowing poverty in the difficult years of World War I, at age 14, I was as convinced an atheist as the communists are today. I had read atheistic books, and it was not just that I did not believe in God or Christ. I hated these notions, considering them harmful for the human mind. So I grew up in bitterness toward religion. But as I understood afterward, I had the grace to be one of the chosen of God for reasons I don't understand. These reasons have nothing to do with my character because my character was very bad. Although I was an atheist, something unreasonable always attracted me to churches. I found it difficult to pass a church without entering it. However, I never understood what was going on in these churches. One day, being a very convinced atheist, I prayed to God. My prayer was something like this. God, I know surely that you do not exist, but if perchance you exist which I contest, it is not my duty to believe in you. It is your duty to reveal yourself to me. I was an atheist, but atheism did not give peace to my heart. During this time of inner turmoil, an old carpenter in the village high up in the mountains of Romania prayed like this. My God, I have served you on heaven, excuse me, on earth, and I wish to have my reward on earth as well as in heaven. And my reward should be that I should not die before I bring a Jew to Christ, because Jesus was from the Jewish people. But I am poor, old, and sick. I cannot go around and seek a Jew. In my village there are none. Bring a Jew into my village, and I will do my best to bring him to Christ. Something irresistible drew me to that village. I had no reason to go there. Romania has 12,000 villages, but I went to that one. Seeing I was a Jew, that carpenter courted me as never a beautiful girl had been courted. He saw in me the answer to his prayer and gave me a Bible to read. As he told me some time later, he and his wife prayed together for hours for my conversion and that of my wife. The Bible he gave me was written not so much in words, but in flames of love, fired by his prayers, I could barely read it. I could only weep over it, comparing my bad life with the life of Jesus, my impurity with his righteousness, my hatred with his love, and he accepted me as one of his own. Soon thereafter, my wife was converted. She brought other souls to Christ. These other souls brought still more to Christ, and so a new congregation arose in Romania. Then came the Nazis, under whom we suffered much. In Romania, Nazism took the form of a dictatorship of extreme orthodox elements that persecuted Protestant groups as well as the Jews. Even before my formal ordination and before I was prepared for the ministry, I was the leader of this church, being the founder of it. I was responsible for it. My wife and I were arrested several times, beaten, and hauled before Nazi judges. The Nazi terror was great, but only a taste of what was to come under the communists. But these Nazi times had one great advantage. They taught us the physical beatings could be endured, and that the human spirit, with God's help, can survive horrible tortures. The cruelty of atheism is hard to believe. When a man has no faith in the reward of good or the punishment of evil, there is no reason to be human. There is no restraint from the depths of evil that is in man. 
the communist torturers often said, there is no God, no hereafter, no punishment for evil. We can do what we wish. I heard one torturer say, I thank God in whom I do not believe that I live to this hour when I can express all the evil in my heart. He expressed it in unbelievable brutality and torture inflicted on prisoners. In the first days after my conversion, I felt that I would not be able to live any longer. Walking on the street, I felt physical pain for every man or woman who passed by. It was like a knife in my heart. So burning was the question of whether or not he or she was saved. If a member of the congregation sinned, I would weep for hours. The longing for the salvation of all souls has remained in my heart, and the communists are not excluded from it. I am very sorry if a crocodile eats a man, but I cannot reproach the crocodile. It is not a moral being. So no reproaches can be made to the communists. Communist, communism has destroyed any moral sense in them. They boast that they have no pity in their hearts. I learned from them, as they allowed no place for Jesus in their heart, I decided I would not leave the smallest place for Satan in mine. Those last two sentences. <laughs> ah, I'm trying to get, trying to get through this today. Those last two sentences really struck me. It said, I learned from them, as they allowed no place for Jesus in their heart, I decided I would not leave the smallest place for Satan in mine. <sighs> what Richard Wurmbrand saw was men who had, were consumed with the God of this world, were consumed with an evil that manifested itself in horrible, horrible ways. And he was determined that even the slightest foothold of that God of this world and of that evil would not be in his life. And he was really determined to be consumed with the love of Christ. And that's what I really want to emphasize today, that we would be consumed with the love of Christ, just like Richard Wurmbrand, that we would not allow that foothold of this world, the God of this world, uh, the pleasure of the flesh to impede on our walk with Christ. And that's really what it's going to take when we talk about these verses. These are hard verses. I don't know about you again. Um, I look at these, these are hard verses that Christ is going to give us today. And it's going to take that consuming love of Christ to be able to, to live these things out. So what I want to do is I want to read the passage, and what I'd ask you to do is if God brings someone to your mind, <clears throat> that as we go through this, this message today, as you go through these verses, that you would really put yourself in the situation of these verses, in the situations that... Richard Wormbrand to find himself. Put your situation there and apply these things to your situation, the people in your life that may uh, be involved in the kind of things that Christ discussed in these verses today. So let's go ahead and open up to Matthew 5, 43 to 48. And I had a note to get the verse page, but I didn't, I didn't get that. So it's uh, Matthew 5, 43 to 48. All right. So it says, you have, sir, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. <laughs> if that's not hard, I don't know what it is. Ah, anyways. That you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet those, your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. All right, so let's walk through the passage here. Uh, it starts out with, uh, you have heard that it was said. So the last message I preached was Father's Day. At the very end of that uh, passage that I covered, it talks about having righteousness greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. And after that, a statement by Christ, he goes through six times where he says something very similar. You've heard it said, you heard it said of old, you've heard it said by whoever. He does that six different times. And as he does that, he talks about the righteousness of the Pharisees. So it could be um, that you shouldn't murder, right? So that's a very low bar. Right? So the righteousness of the Pharisees was designed for them to be able to meet that standard. And so they held to a very low standard. That you notice, if you notice in that passage, it said you shouldn't murder, but then what Christ said was, I don't want you to have anger against your brother. He set the bar very, very high. Uh, the religious leaders of that time were determined to make a standard of righteousness that they could meet and exceed very easily. Uh, the, the standard of, of righteousness that Christ calls us to is one that requires that we be in communion with him to be able to accomplish that and really have him accomplish it through us. We can't do it on our, on our own. Um, and so then after that, it says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They took... Uh, the, the verse, you shall love your neighbor, and they implied that then I could then hate my enemy. And of course, what they did in order to justify their anger and their hatred towards those they didn't like is they defined anybody who they didn't want to love as their enemy, anybody who they wanted to love as their neighbor. Uh, so again, very convenient, very low standard of righteousness that they held to. Uh, but Christ says that you should love your enemies. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Greek words that are translated love in the Bible. Uh, there's eros, which is romantic love. There's phileo, which is, talks about the love of a friendship. There's a word that means familial love, so the love we have for each other in a, in a given family. And then there's the word that's used here, which is agape, which is a moral love, a love that's purposely directed towards others, regardless of how they, uh, or how they respond to us. And that's the love that Christ calls us to have in this situation. But he says, love your enemies. So who are our enemies? Right, so in this next series of, of statements, he, he defines who those enemies are. And the first enemy he, he calls out is those who would curse us. So I'm, you might be able to think of people that have cursed you in your life. Anybody who's been a driver probably has experienced cursing in their life, right? So but there's a lot of different contexts we could, we could, uh, we could have cursing. And that what, what, what Christ calls us to do when we're cursed is to bless. And this has the idea of Words that are kind and friendly in response to those words which are uh, evil and keep, keep, uh, seek to, to tear us down. Uh, so what I want to do is I want to have um, another passage from Richard, Richard Wormbrand, which kind of exemplifies this, um, the blessing and the response to this cursing. Number two. In the prison of Gerla, a Christian named Greku was sentenced to be beaten to death. The process lasted a few weeks, during which he was beaten very slowly. He would be hit with a rubber club and then left. After some minutes, he would again be hit, and then another few minutes again. Then a doctor gave him an injection. He recovered and was given very good food to restore his strength, and then he was beaten again, until eventually he died under this slow, repeated beating. One who led this torture was a member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party, whose name was Rek. 
During the beatings, Reck said something to Greku that the communists often said to Christians. You know, I am God. I have the power of life and death over you. The one who is in heaven cannot decide to keep you in life. Everything depends on me. If I wish you lived, if I wish you are killed, I am God. So he mocked the Christian. Brother Greku, in this horrible situation, gave Rek a very interesting answer, which I heard afterward from Rek himself. He said, you don't know what a deep thing you have said. Every caterpillar is in reality a butterfly if it develops rightly. You have not been created to be a torturer, a man who kills. You've been created to become like God, that the life of the Godhead would be in your heart. Many who have been persecuted like you have come to realize, like the Apostle Paul, that it is shameful for man to commit atrocities, that they can do much better things. Believe me, Mr. Reck, your real calling is to be godlike, to have the character of God, not a torturer. At that moment, Reck did not pay much attention to the words of his victim, as Saul of Tarsus did not pay attention to the beautiful witness of Stephen being killed in his presence. But those words worked in his heart and Rack later understood that this was his real calling. What a profound response to uh, just words that were very harsh, obviously, uh, in Greco's life. And I think what was really incredibly telling was there he was not pleading for his life, right? He was pleading for the soul of this person who uh, just hated him, right? And was, uh, was cursing him and seeking to have uh, him put to death. So that's a profound example of that. Who is, who is our enemy? So that first, the first one was those who curse us. The second one was those who hate us. Uh, Christ said, if, 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 if you're, we're hated, what we're, what's our response to be? It's to be that we uh, do good to those that hate us. So if we're hated, then we should do good to those that hate us. So we talked about blessings um, in responding in friendly and kind words. And then we're supposed to take it that next step in our actions and do good to those that would do ill to us. And as I was reading through a variety of different uh, books. I came upon somebody, a character by Arch, Archbishop Cranmore. He was in the 1500s, and he was martyred in 1556 for his faith. And it was said of him that the way to make him a friend was to do, an, do him an ill turn. In other words, to do some harm to him or uh, do some evil to him. So many did he serve who dis disobliged him. And I have this picture of him walking through life and having somebody do something negative towards him, reach out in hatred or anger or spitefulness, and his response was, returned to, was to turn to them in that agape love and really to seek to serve and do, do good to those, those people that did that in his, uh, to him. And now, did each one of those that he responded to in that way, did they uh, come to Christ? No, but I'm sure many of them did. Did a lot of them become friends with him and experience that phileo love? No, but some of them certainly did. Did all of them turn from hatred to seeing that hatred go away? I'm sure not all of them did, but some of them did. And he recognized that he can't control the outcome of what his actions would do, but he was called, as these verses say, to do good to those that hate him. And that's what he sought to do. And he had a testimony that stood out for the last 500 years as, re as a result. All right, who is our enemy? So we've had curse, those that curse us, those who hate us. Uh, then here's one that calls, says it's spitefully use and persecute us, those who spitefully use and persecute us. And our response in this situation is that we should pray. Pray for those that spitefully use and persecute us. We certainly see the example of Christ on the cross, 
uh, dying for our, our sins, taking on that penalty, he certainly exemplified that. And I also want to have a passage from Richard Wormbrand that exemplifies that as well. Number three. St. Augustine teaches, if all mankind had been righteous and only one man the sinner, Christ would have come to endure the same cross for this one man. He so loves every individual. The Christian teaching is clear. Communists are men and Christ loves them. So does every man who has the mind of Christ. We love the sinner even though we hate the sin. We know about the love of Christ toward the communists by our own love toward them. I have seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with a red-hot iron pokers, in whose throats spoonfuls of salt had been forced, being kept afterward without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold, and praying with fervor for the communists. This is humanly inexplicable. It is the love of Christ which is poured out in our hearts. Love that. Humanly inexplicable. <clears throat> that's the love that we're called to. One that's humanly inexplicable. And certainly that is the case. To be able to be in that situation where someone just has not, does not have your best interest at heart, uh, is spitefully using you, persecuting you for whatever reason, and to, to show that kind of love, to be able to pray for them, is inexplicable, but that's what Christ calls us to. Uh, then it goes on to say that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Right? Uh, so that is, we show that we are a child of God by acting the way our Father acts, and that's the example that Christ has given to us. And we see in these, in these passages from uh, Richard Warmbrand. Uh, in this, we can display the goodness of God, and it goes on to, in the, in the remaining verses, to talk about how he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, sends his rain on the just and the unjust. Now, God decided to allow men to curse him and still show his love for us uh, in, that, in that situation and allow us to enjoy the benefits of, of this earth without immediately casting us in instant judgment. And then it wraps up with, therefore, be perfect or be mature as, as God is perfect and mature. And that's what we're called to. So what I want to do is, in the remaining few moments here is just talk about how do we measure being consumed with, with God's love in our life? How can we measure that? What are some of the things that we need to have to really uh, be consumed and exhibit the kind of love that, that, that uh, Christ talks about here, which is very difficult love to have as you encounter people that are uh, exhibiting those kinds of things towards us, cursing us, hating us. Again, whether it's for our faith or not, uh, our response still is, allows us to shine the light of the gospel on them. So I want to talk about three different things that uh, ways we can measure if we're consumed with the love of Christ the way we should. And the first one is, is do we have an eternal perspective? And I just want to start off with a, a passage from Richard Warmbrod that kind of emphasizes that eternal perspective. Number four. When one Christian was sentenced to death, he was allowed to see his wife before being executed. His last words to his wife were, you must know that I died loving those who kill me. They don't know what they do, and my last request of you is to love them too. Don't have bitterness in your heart because they killed your beloved one. We will meet in heaven. These words impressed the officer of the secret police who intended the discussion between the two. He later told me the story in prison where he had been sent for becoming a Christian. On this earth is but a vapor, as James says, 
that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And we have a choice in this, in this earth to choose to try to grab onto that vapor or to recognize that we're made in the image of God, which is we're made in, to be eternal. And that this is just a shadow. Where we're living here is a shadow of the time to come. And we can just choose to live uh, with the eternal perspective or the temporal perspective. We certainly have a culture that's uh, very much focused on the temporal and getting everything we can here and now. But God's called us to an eternal perspective. And that's the perspective that was exemplified here. And that if, if I'm going to look towards uh, the here and now and my situation, trying to get myself out of the situation, then I will act differently than I'm looking out for what God has in mind, what God's going to accomplish through eternity, what God's going to accomplish in my life through going through the difficulties that, I'm, that I might be facing. All right, the second thing I want to talk about in terms of um, being, having a life that's consumed by the love of Christ is having the right priorities. And again, I want to listen to Richard Warmbrand. Thanks. It was a crime to help the families of Christian martyrs. Two ladies who helped my son, Mihai, were arrested and beaten so badly that they were permanently crippled. A lady who risked her life and took Mihai into her house was sentenced to eight years in prison for the crime of having helped families of prisoners. All of her teeth were kicked out and her bones were broken. She will never be able to walk again. She will be a cripple for life. At the age of 11, Mihai began to earn his living as a regular worker. Suffering had produced a wavering of his faith. But after two years of his mother Sabina's imprisonment, he was allowed to see her. He went to the communist prison and saw his mother behind iron bars. She was dirty, thin, with calloused hands, wearing the shabby uniform of a prisoner. He scarcely recognized her. Her first words were, Mihai, believe in Jesus. The guards, in a savage rage, pulled her away from Mihai and took her out. Mihai wept, seeing his mother dragged away. This minute was the minute of his conversion. He knew that if Christ can be loved under such circumstances, he surely is the true Savior. So put yourself in the position of Richard Wormbrand's wife and the mother of her child, his child, and she hasn't seen him in two years. She has, we don't know if she's heard about the situation, where he's at, where his walk is, and what he's struggling with. But I'm certain, certainly she wants many things, to tell him many things, communicate many things to him. Um, but she doesn't know how much time she'll have, what the situation will be. And so she chooses that top thing that she needs to communicate to him, and that is to believe in Christ. And she communicates that not only in the words, but in the circumstances she's in, as you can see there, and how the impact that that had on her son in doing that. That was her top priority, to communicate that to her son. And the last thing, in terms of looking at if we're consumed with the love of Christ, is that our foremost desire must be to see the lost come to Christ. And again, this is the final passage we'll look at from Richard Warmbrand. This book is written not so much with ink as with the blood of bleeding, be, as with the blood of bleeding hearts. As in the book of Daniel, when the three young men who were put in the furnace did not smell like fire upon being delivered from it, so the Christians within communist prisons don't smell like bitterness against the communists. The flower, if you bruise it under your feet, rewards you by giving you its perfume. Likewise, Christians, tortured by the communists, 
rewarded their torturers by love. We brought many of our jailers to Christ. We are dominated by one desire, to give communists who made us suffer the best we have, the salvation that comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're really called to replace the impulse to hate those in our lives that, that, were, that are counter to us or that we have difficulty with, really to show them love and really to look at uh, that, that long-term approach of trying to win them to Christ and show them the love of Christ. And that's what we're really called to do, and that can be very, very hard. Um, and we look at these, these situations with Richard Wormbrand, and, and you know, we're not in that situation, right? I don't think anybody here is tortured or persecuted for their faith. Um, but as, as interesting, Paul in, in 2 Corinthians talks about um, his light affliction, which is but for a moment. So even Paul, who certainly experienced much, if not more, than Richard Wormbrand, looked at that as light affliction, right? We're all afflicted in some way. We're all struggling with different things. We all have difficulties with people and, and people that uh, are against us and our adversaries and uh, have difficult uh, relationships or those kinds of things. And that what, God, what God calls us to is to show them a love of Christ that would really point them to uh, salvation in Christ. And just responding uh, for good instead of with evil. And this is, this is something that's very, very difficult to do. And I don't want it to make it seem like um, we should look at the suffering of Richard Wormbrand and say that my suffering is, pales in comparison. Uh, but instead, look at that as an example, as the Bible is an example, as, as Christ certainly exemplified for us, of, of how we can um, be consumed with the love of Christ and have that love really pour out through us and onto those that that need Christ in, um, in their lives. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just thank you for your word and for uh, the truths that are found in it. And uh, Lord, I just, um, I thank you for the example of those uh, that come before us like Richard Wormbrand of being able to uh, withstand the, um, the persecution uh, of those that would uh, stand against you, Lord, and how you gave him the strength and the testimony for us to hear that. Lord, I just pray in each of our own lives, Lord, that as we encounter our affliction, we encounter the difficulties with, with people and circumstances, those that may be in our family that um, disagree with our, our stand for Christ, or those in the workplace that um, stand counter to our, our, uh, our trust and faith in Christ, Lord, that we would turn and follow the example you've given us in your word and your call to us to, uh, to bless them, uh, to do good to, to good to them, to pray for them. And Father, that um, as we come to you each day and each week and we lift up uh, people in prayer, I pray that those that have afflicted us in some way or those that we see that uh, speak out against Christianity and against our faith, that we would lift them up in prayer and desire to have you work through them. Lord, not to seek punishment or retribution or justice, but Lord, to seek you be glorified and seek them to come to an eternal saving knowledge of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.